Welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here today. If you're new, my name's Chad. Welcome. And it looks like we have a great crowd here on site, but we also have a whole bunch of people joining us online. I just checked, and we've got Scott in Tennessee, John in Manford, Shell, who's at the National Guard Base, Mimi in Collinsville, and a whole bunch of others. So if you are here on site, would you get loud? Put your hands together. Welcome in our online family. Let them know we're glad they're joining us here today. And I'm excited to dive back into our series, Alpha and Omega. A few years ago, I found out about this pediatric dentist in New Jersey who wanted to try to ease some of the anxiety and fear that little kids had when they came to the dentist. And so he decided to learn some magic tricks. And this is what a typical visit to his office looks like. Take a look at this video. Do you know how to do it? Yeah. All right, let's see, get that red thing back. How do we do it? Oh, you did it again. How many guys want to go see that dentist? Anybody else want to see that dentist? Yeah, me too. I love him. And I love his approach because he knows that some little kids, they're scared when they go see the dentist. And so he wants to change their middle image of what it means to go to the dentist. He wants to change their picture of what the dentist is. He wants them to know he's not out to get them or hurt them or scare them. He's there to help them. He's on their side. And honestly, that's what we're trying to do with the book of Revelation in this series, Alpha and Omega. Because a lot of people are scared of the book of Revelation. They're intimidated by it, and it's been abused and misused throughout the years. And so what we wanna do is we wanna get back to the original context in which Revelation was written, to understand why it was given to the first century church and why it was given to all the generations of the church from there on, what it meant to them and what it's supposed to mean to us so that we can apply it in the way that God intended for us to apply it. Because when you look at the original context, Look at what John says when he opens up this book. He says in verse three of chapter one, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. I've brought this verse to your attention every single week because I think this is so important. From the very beginning, John wants us to know revelation was meant to be a blessing. It wasn't meant to scare the church. It was meant to strengthen the church. It was meant to teach us how to live under God's blessing in the midst of crazy and uncertain, chaotic times. In order for us to live under his blessing, look at what it says. It says we have to keep what is written in it. See, yes, Revelation is a prophecy, and it does say some things about the future, but never at the expense of the present. It was meant to be lived out both in the first century world and also in our day and age as well. And this isn't the only time that this is said in the book of Revelation. This is the beginning of the book, but you go to the end of the book, look at what Jesus himself says. Jesus says in chapter 22, verse seven, look, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. Revelation was meant to be a blessing and it was meant to be a blessing to those who obey it, who actually live it out. That was true for the first century church and it's been true for every generation of the church. Revelation was meant to give us unshakable hope 
in the midst of uncertain times. And so that's been our approach as we dive into the book of Revelation, because I believe that Revelation is an intensely practical book. I think the first century Christians, they studied from it, they read aloud from it, they heard sermons on it, and I believe they drew from it practical teachings that they could use in their daily lives as they waited for Jesus to return. And I think that's what we're supposed to do as well. We're supposed to draw from it practical application, practical teachings for our daily lives as we continue to wait for Jesus to come back. So the primary result of studying Revelation is not speculation, but it's transformation. See, there are some people who really want to study this book for the purpose of like putting together like, you know, charts and timelines and predict dates and certain figures throughout history and all that kind of stuff. And that's what they really focus on and they end up missing the main point. The point of Revelation is to draw us closer to Jesus. The point of Revelation is to get us to trust Jesus now. He is the central figure of this book. Look at what Revelation chapter one says in the very first line. It says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is all about Jesus. It is from Jesus, it is for Jesus' people. He is the central figure of this book. He's the main character. He is the narrator and he is in total control. The point of this book is not speculation, it's transformation. So that as you focus on Jesus, as you have a bigger picture of him, then he will transform your life because we need him, not just in the future, we need him right now. We don't just need Jesus one day. We need him right now. And so many people approach Revelation with this mindset of, well, most of what it talks about is just one day, down the road, down the road, down the road sometime. And what we need to do is realize we need Jesus now and Revelation is showing us how we can rely on him now. And one reason why we need him right now is because we have a very real enemy who right now is out to get us. Kyle Eidelman is the preacher at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And Kyle, in his book, God's at War, tells the story about his daughter when she was four years old. And I've heard Kyle personally tell this story before. His daughter wanted a pet. Well, they had never had a pet in their household before, so they thought they would go easy with their first choice, and they settled on a fish. And so they took their daughter to the local pet store, and the pet store had a sign that said, any fish, three-day money-back guarantee, no questions asked. And Kyle thought, that's good stewardship, because they never had a pet before, so he thought they would try that out. And so his daughter picked out the fish that she wanted. It was kind of like this one right here. And so she got her fish and she named it Nemo, which is an appropriate name, especially because the movie was big at that time. And so they brought Nemo home and their little girl was just so pumped, so excited. The problem was you really can't do a whole lot with a fish. Like you can, you know, point at it and it might follow your finger around or something like that, but you can't take it for a walk. You can't play fetch. You can't really pet it without hurting it, you know? So their daughter was a little bit disappointed. And so Kyle said, I have a great idea. Let's go swimming and we'll take the fishbowl out to the pool. We'll set it on the edge of the pool. And while you swim around, Nemo can swim with you and you guys can have a fun time. So that's what they did. And sure enough, it worked. His little girl swam around the pool. Nemo swam in his bowl. She believed they were swimming together and it was a fun time until they looked over at the bowl on the side of the pool and Nemo wasn't in it. 
Nemo, living up to his name, had jumped out of the bowl and had gone into the pool and was swimming and was swimming freely throughout the pool. And so the little girl panicked because she didn't want to lose Nemo. But also Kyle was upset because he knew that was a chlorine pool and Nemo was not going to last too long in that chlorine. And so Kyle made it his mission then to, well, find Nemo. And so he started looking for Nemo in this pool. And I, when I heard him tell this story, he said, you know, finding a little fish in a big pool is even more difficult than it sounds because he never did, he never was able to catch Nemo until eventually, unfortunately, the chlorine got the best of Nemo and Nemo floated to the top. So Kyle scooped out Nemo, but he remembered the three-day money-back guarantee, no questions asked. <laughs> and so he took the fish to the pet store. And when he got to the pet store, he held up the fish in a bag and the pet store worker said, what happened? And Kyle said, I told her the truth. He drowned, which I guess technically he did. <laughs> but the reason why he drowned was because he was swimming in water he wasn't supposed to be in. The water that he was swimming in was toxic. See, I'm sure that when Nemo jumped out of that bowl, he thought, I'm free. And he was having the time of his life swimming around that big water, that big pool. The problem is, this bowl wasn't limiting Nemo in the sense that it was robbing him of fun or joy or excitement. It was actually protecting him. And what we find out as we read through the book of Revelation is that God has a plan for our lives. And God's plan, sometimes when people in our culture today look at it, they say, oh, that's so limiting, it's restrictive, it wants to hold us back and keep us from enjoying life and having fun. And what God is trying to tell us is, no, 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 no. I'm trying to keep you safe. I'm trying to protect you because the waters that you want to swim in, they're toxic and they're dangerous. And as we get to Revelation chapter 12, what we discover is God's people in the first century world were on the verge of swimming in dangerous waters. They were putting a toe in the waters of culture. They were just kind of testing it out, flirting with the water a little bit. And what they didn't realize is that there was a dragon in the water waiting for them. And that's where we pick up in Revelation chapter 12. Because last week we ended with Jesus opening the seven seals on a scroll, which was symbolic for God's decreed plan for all of humanity, how to rescue and save the human race, how to save his creation. And what's interesting is this plan for the human race will be told two other times in the book of Revelation, both in the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. We don't have time in this series to go through all that just because this is an overview series. But it's told two more times from different angles, from different perspectives. And so we get a little bit different details in that. But right in the middle of God's plan unfolding, we're introduced to the primary antagonist in this drama that is God's story for the ages. And this antagonist, we find out, is hell-bent on coming after us, you and me. This is how he's described in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. The great dragon, that's our enemy, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, if you were here on Christmas Eve, you know that we did a deep dive into Revelation chapter 12 because Revelation chapter 12 actually presents the story of Jesus' birth in apocalyptic language, in vivid language. And so we looked at the Christmas story from a different angle. And what we found out was that even before Jesus was born, the old dragon, Satan, was trying to stop Jesus from being born. And at the moment that he was born, he was trying to stop Jesus from doing what he came to do. And throughout Jesus' life and ministry, the dragon was trying to stop Jesus, even to the point that the dragon thought he had won 
one when Jesus was placed on the cross. But we all know that on the third day, when Jesus walked out of the tomb, the dragon was forever defeated. And that's the story of the dragon. The dragon tries to be Jesus and he fails. He tries again and he fails. He tries again and he fails. The dragon is a loser and he has been defeated ultimately, finally, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But even though the dragon has been defeated, he is still not yet destroyed. Because God still has a plan for this world and God is allowing the dragon to have limited power on the earth until his son comes back. And what we discover is dragons are not gracious losers. Dragons, well, they want to, they want to make sure that their way is accomplished even though they've already been beat. And so what we find out is the dragon knows he can't come after Jesus. He can't beat Jesus. So he set his sights, his eyes on Jesus' followers, Jesus' people, that's us. As we read on in Revelation chapter 12, this is what we find out. It says, then the dragon was enraged at the woman. Now this woman here is symbolic of God's people who brought about the Messiah, in this case, the nation of Israel, and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. So who are the rest of her offspring? Who are those who come after Jesus? Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So who are the rest of the offspring that the dragon has set his sights on? Those who hold to God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now here's the thing. I hear people say sometimes that the church isn't mentioned in the book of Revelation on earth after Revelation chapters two and three. Who do you think this is? Guys, this is the church. This is us. We are those who obey God's commandments. We are those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. And here, what this is saying is we are being hunted, that the dragon is after us. And I know that there are different theological beliefs and I know that there are differences when it comes to interpretations on the book of Revelation. And I get all that. I don't find most of those differences as salvation issues, but honestly, all of our interpretive differences go out the window when we realize we are being hunted. When we realize we have a common enemy who's out to get us, who's hell bent on stopping us and stopping the mission that God has given us. We have an enemy who's very powerful, but as we read on in Revelation, we will discover that his power is limited. He is powerful, but he is not all powerful. Yet the one who is with us is all powerful. And that's why John tells us in 1 John, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And because God is on our side, God reveals to us what Satan's plans are so that we are not unaware of his schemes. The Bible gives us that promise in 2 Corinthians. We're not aware, we're not unaware of what Satan is up to. We know his schemes, and that's actually what Revelation chapter 13 and following is all about. Jesus here is letting us know Satan's tactics for attacking us. He's letting us know Satan's game plan. And what we find out is that Satan, in order to get the most amount of people in the least amount of time, he attacks, he targets societal influences that will affect the most people. And we find out in Revelation chapters 13 and following that there are three primary societal influences and structures that Satan goes after. John refers to them as 
two beasts and a dragon. I'm sorry, two beasts and a prostitute. Satan's a dragon, two beasts and a prostitute. And so let's talk about these two beasts and a prostitute. The first beast that John tells us about is, I'm gonna refer to him as the beast of political deception. Because Satan throughout the history of the church has used political influences to distract the church and to pull the church away from God. Listen to what Revelation 13 says, verse one. It says, and the dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had 10 horns and seven heads with 10 horns on, 10 crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Now we've talked about this before. In apocalyptic literature, the sea always represented what was chaotic and uncertain. It even represented evil. So what's going on here? Here John sees a dragon, this figure, symbolic figure coming out of the chaos, coming out of the sea, bringing a perfect storm of chaos and evil to the earth. And this beast is empowered by the dragon. The dragon gives this beast authority and power to do what he needs to do in order to cause this chaos on on the earth. Now, I know that throughout recent history, a lot of people want to debate about who this beast is. You know, they try to pinpoint it was this person in history or it will be this person on down the road in history. But remember what I said earlier, revelation was meant to be practical. It makes no sense for Jesus to tell the first century church to obey what is written in this prophecy. And then for what's written in this prophecy, not to make any sense to them for thousands of years later, there had to be some practical application here. And I think we need to read this passage as they would have read it. Because see, if you notice, this beast is described with character traits of horns and you know, a lion and a bear and, and a leopard. What, is that? what was that all about? Well, you see, the first century readers would have gone right back to the book of Daniel because they would have immediately gone back to that description of four different beasts that are mentioned in the book of Daniel that talk about, that represent the last four kingdoms that would reign on the earth before the time of Jesus, before the time of Christ. And each one of those kingdoms had one of these character traits, looking like a lion or looking like a leopard or whatever. And so what John here is doing is he's summarizing, taking all the political power that exists in this world and he's putting it into this one symbolic figure, this one symbolic beast. And this beast represents the world's political influence and power. And what he's saying is the dragon will use the government systems of this world, the politics of this world in order to distract people away from Jesus. And hasn't the dragon been doing that ever since the church began? I mean, it was happening in John's day with the Roman Empire. They were saying, hey, come follow the Roman Empire and put all of your allegiance in the Roman Empire, all your hope in the Roman Empire, and we will give you peace and security and safety. And if you don't, we'll come after you and persecute you and we will try to force you to give all your allegiance to the Roman Empire. It wasn't just the Roman Empire. Throughout the history of the church, this has been happening. And even today in our American culture, maybe we're not physically being persecuted, but doesn't Satan sometimes try to use politics to distract us from God's kingdom mission for our lives? Because here's the truth I think we all need to wrap our minds around. What we put our hope in is what we worship. What we put our hope in is what we worship. So I feel like I need to say this. And I know there are some preachers that would probably tiptoe around this and 
be afraid to do it. I'm not saying that I love doing it, but I think it needs to be done. Guys, this is an election year, in case you didn't know. This is an election year, okay? And I just wanna say up front, I love our country. I feel so grateful to be an American, to be born in this country, to have the freedoms that we have. I believe that it is a gift from God to be able to live in this country. And I believe that as a follower of Jesus, that I need to vote and you need to vote for political figures and for laws that represent Jesus, our King. We need to do that. We're responsible for doing that. But I grow weary of those who claim to be Christians whose hope rises and falls with every election cycle. Because no matter what happens, no matter what happens in any given election, our hope is not in who's in the White House. Our hope is in the one who sits on the heavenly throne. Our hope is not in a government. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in man-made laws. Our hope is in God's promises. Our hope is not in the kingdoms of men. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. And no matter what happens, whether our country puts in who we consider to be the right guy or doesn't put in the right guy, no matter what happens, Jesus is still King of kings and Lord of lords. And our allegiance is first and foremost always to him. And he is always in control. And that's why I do grow weary and tired sometimes of people who claim to be Christians whose hope rises and falls with every election cycle. Because our hope is not in politics. Our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Always. And just to give you an example of this, Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, not a Christian, a Roman historian in the first century, he writes about the persecution that the Christians were suffering at that time. This is during the days of Nero, actually. And listen to what he said that the Christians went through as they were persecuted. They were being killed for their faith. And he says, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They wanted to make fun of them, mock them, ridicule them. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination. They were used as human torches, basically, when daylight had expired. And yet, even with that type of persecution, the church prevailed. Rome was unable to stop the growth of the church. And today, you can go and you can tour the ruins of Rome. But Rome doesn't exist anymore. However, today, the church of Jesus Christ is alive and well and is growing all across the globe. Because Jesus has promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's the hope that we have. It's in Jesus. And so, no matter what happens this election season, don't get me wrong, I want you to vote for people and laws that represent Jesus, okay? And we should. But no matter what happens, don't get distracted from who's really king because that's what the dragon wants. There's another puppet here that Satan uses. And this puppet I'm gonna call the beast of false religion. If you notice in Revelation 13 verse 11, it says this. It says, then I saw another beast. This is a second beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. So get this imagery here. He looks like a lamb. He has the appearance of a lamb, 
but he has the voice of the dragon. He has the appearance of what's spiritual, but what he says is false. This is false religion. And as you read through the description here, what we find out is this beast does counterfeit miracles. He tries to seduce the world to worship him. In fact, in Revelation chapter 19, he's referred to as the false prophet. See, what Satan likes to do is use distorted versions of religion or Christianity to try to draw people away from God. And there were no shortage of false religions or distortions of Christianity in the first century world when John was writing this. There's no shortage of them today either. We, hear, we see them all the time. We hear them all the time. Sometimes these false ideas even creep into our churches. Like you will hear people say things like, you know, all religions really lead to the same God or all faith systems will get us to heaven. That sounds nice. It sounds very tolerant and very inclusive. The problem is it's the voice of the dragon. It's not the voice of the lamb, the true lamb, because listen to what the lamb says. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The other sounds nice. The problem is it gives people false hope. And Jesus' invitation to come and follow him so that all people can come to the Father is for all people everywhere. But you have to go through him. But that's what the dragon loves to do. He loves to give people false and counterfeit hope, thinking that they are headed in the right direction, but actually being deceived the entire time. And that's why John tells us that the number of this beast's name is 666. Now, I know when some of you heard me say 666, you set up because, you know, people want to know, what does this mean? You know, exactly what, who is 666? You know, what, what is this? And, you know, you can go and you can read books for the past, you know, 25, 30 years and every recent president has been identified as 666, okay? And people have claimed that 666 represents anybody from, you know, Hitler to Hillary Clinton to Ronald Reagan to Putin to Gorbachev to Henry Kissinger. People have even said that 666 represents you know, like social security numbers or visa cards or the World Wide Web for that matter. And there's a whole lot of theories out there about what this represents. But remember, Revelation was meant to be a practical book for the first century church and every generation after it. What did it mean to them? Guys, if what John was trying to tell us was about the World Wide Web, I don't think there was much practical application for the first century Christians reading about it. What did this mean to them? you have to look at apocalyptic literature. It uses numbers, right? What is the number six? It's one short of seven. It's not seven. It's close to seven, but it's not. It falls short of seven. And in apocalyptic literature, seven is always the number for God. In fact, there are two numbers that represent God, seven and three, both of which means completeness, wholeness, perfection. So in apocalyptic literature, if you wanted to choose a number that would represent God, it would be 777, which would mean perfectly perfect, completely complete. But if you wanted to pick a number that fell short of God but was trying to be God, it would be 666. See, six is short of seven, so 666 three times is completely incomplete. And what John is trying to tell us is this false prophet, this beast of the earth, this beast of false religion, he's trying to be God. He looks like the lamb, but he falls short every single time. And I know that some people say, well, what about Hebrew numerology or, you know, don't, don't Hebrew numbers, you know, mean stuff? And they do. And in fact, there could be multiple meanings to stuff. And this is interesting to me. 
That word beast in Greek, if you were to translate it into Hebrew and then figure out your Hebrew numbers, what they mean, do you realize that the word beast in Hebrew actually equals out to six, six, six? Maybe that's why John said, if you go on to the next slide, that this number, 666, is the name of the beast or the number of his name. What he's saying is 666 is just his name, symbolic for his name. And the reason why John chooses to use this symbolism is to let us know he is completely incomplete. What he promises is completely incomplete. So don't buy into it. Don't get sucked into it. And it's also cool to me that in this passage, it says that those who follow this beast of false religion, they will be marked on their hands and their foreheads with his mark, which is 666. Now, again, what did this mean? And today people say, well, those are microchips or those are whatever. Again, what would this have meant to the first century Christians? These first century Christians were well-versed in the Old Testament. And when they heard hand and forehead, they would have gone right back to Deuteronomy chapter six. You remember what this says? God tells his people in the Old Testament, bind my commandments, my word, my laws, bind my commandments as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Why did God tell his Old Testament people to bind, symbolically speaking, his words, his commandments on their hands and their foreheads? Because the hand represented your actions, your head represented your thoughts. Let God's commandments, let's, let, let's, let God's word drive your actions and your thoughts. And so what this is saying in Revelation is these people that are marked with the sign of the beast, they let false teachings, falsehood, lies drive their actions and their thoughts. And what Jesus is trying to warn us about is don't follow their example, but instead be those, as Revelation tells us, who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, there's one more puppet, one more agent of the dragon that we haven't talked about yet. And that's the prostitute of cultural seduction. And this is how the prostitute of cultural seduction is described. It says in Revelation chapter 17, the great prostitute who sits on many waters, with her the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. See, Satan also likes to use culture, the desires of culture to seduce us and draw us away from God. It was happening in the hedonistic and pagan culture of the first century world. It's happening today. And as you read Revelation 17 and 18, what you discover is that the prostitute of cultural seduction tries to tempt people in three primary ways, through sexual desire, through wealth and prosperity, and through power and fame. In other words, through these things, the prostitute gives false promises and says, hey, sex or wealth or power, these things will give you what only God can give you. Tries to lure us away by tempting us with these desires. And you know what? That was happening in the first century world and not much has changed, has it? This is what Satan has used throughout the history of the church to try to draw people away from God. I once heard someone say, you can't teach an old dragon new tricks. And maybe that's true. But I also think the dragon continues to use these tactics because he knows it works. See, the prostitute of cultural seduction is dressed in expensive clothing. She's got makeup on, her hair's fixed, 
She looks expensive. She looks nice. She looks well put together. And she offers you a golden goblet. The problem is her goblet is full of poison and danger and destruction and disgusting stuff. And we're tempted to drink it because she looks good. And that's why Jesus says these words in Revelation 18, come out of her, my people. We're all adults here. That means exactly what you think it means. Stop being intimate with the prostitute. Stop being intimate with the culture. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Now notice Jesus is saying this not to the people of the world. He is saying this to followers of Jesus, to my people, he says, come out of her because God's people were on the verge of jumping out of the safety of God's plan into the toxic waters of the culture around them. They were sticking a toe into the culture. And because of that, what was wrong was starting to get a little fuzzy to where it looked right. And they were confusing what was right with what's wrong and wrong and what's right. And doesn't that happen today? To where even today, people who claim to be followers of Jesus, well, they laugh at couples who want to save themselves for marriage, but then they call living together before marriage the responsible thing to do. They call pornography therapeutic. They call promiscuity hooking up. They call material selfishness the American way. They call pride self-confidence. They call cheating winning. And we start to allow the dragon into our homes and treat him like a nice little house pet. Every now and then there'll be this story that comes out of some family somewhere that had like a pet bear or something, you know, like a black bear. And they'll, ha and they'll raise this bear since it was a cub. And they spend Christmases with the bear. You know, they celebrate birthdays with the bear. The bear is their pet. The bear is a member of their family. And then one day, the bear attacks a family member or maybe multiple family members. This has happened more than once. And every single time when they interview the family members, they say, we just had no idea this would ever happen. He was a member of our family, the bear. And I feel sorry for those families. But every time I hear a story like that, I wanna think, I wanna say to them, it's a bear. It's a black bear. It's a wild, ferocious animal. And you've invited this animal into your home and you're surprised when it acts like a wild animal? And yet, isn't that what we do with the dragon? We invite the dragon into our homes. We invite the dragon into our dating relationships. We invite the dragon into our places of work. We invite the dragon into our cars. I've seen some of you drive. We invite the dragon. It's a joke, kind of. We invite the dragon where he doesn't belong. And we end up swimming in toxic waters where we shouldn't be. It's interesting to me that the old King James Version, when it talks about the prostitute, doesn't call her a prostitute. Look at what it says. It refers to her as the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Why do the newer translations use the word prostitute, but the older versions say whore? Because whore is actually 
the more literal translation. I think newer versions, we like to clean it up a little bit. Yeah, because there is a little bit of a difference between a whore and a prostitute. And we just like to clean it up a little bit so the dragon doesn't seem as bad as he really is. But the dragon is a seductive, seductive enemy that wants to lure us away at all costs and will do whatever it takes. And we need to recognize him for who he is. The dragon is smart. The dragon is cunning. He's sly. But he is not unstoppable. And that's why Jesus not only tells us about his tactics, his game plan, but Jesus also says this. He says, they, speaking about his people, the church, they overcame the dragon by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. You see, we can overcome the dragon by the blood of the lamb, what Jesus has done for us, because the dragon cannot make an accusation against those who've been covered by the blood of the lamb because he can try to bring up all of our sins before God. But if we've been covered by the blood of the lamb, then God knows that the price of our sin has been paid and we are counted as righteous in his sight. But also we overcome the dragon by our testimony because Jesus is continuing to change us. So every time that we are changed by Jesus and we look more and more like him in this world, we are expelling the dragon. And that's why throughout history and across the globe even today, there are places where the dragon was in total control, but he has now been expelled because of the power of the lamb. And today, right now, some of you, you once lived lives where the dragon was in total control but not anymore because now you've been covered by the blood of the lamb and the blood of the lamb expelled the dragon from your life. He still tries to sneak back in, but as you continue to let Jesus change you, he gets kicked out over and over and over again. And maybe today what you need to hear is it's time for you to kick the dragon out. Maybe what you need to hear today is God is providing you a plan that is safe and secure. Get out of the toxic waters that's going to spiritually kill you and come back to God because the dragon has nothing to offer you that's worth it. Don't buy what the dragon is selling because Jesus is all that you will ever need. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for today and this chance we've had to open up your word and to study it. I know there's a lot of heavy stuff in these passages, but I hope that it brings those who are listening hope. As we remember, yes, we have an enemy out there, but our enemy is not all powerful. You are, and you are with us and you are on our side. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.